It took me a long time to learn to not believe anything. You know, because humans, we evolved to believe. We didn't evolve to know, right? We evolved to believe things so that we, our behavior could be guided. Okay, Louis, welcome to the summit. Um, for anybody that isn't aware of you and your work, could you give us a bit about your, your background, your trajectory? And I'd be curious to hear what was your initial motivation in becoming uh, or working in psychotherapy in, in any capacity? Well, the, the trajectory has been um, long and uh, there's been a lot of twists and turns in it from uh, when I started out, the, la the last thing I thought of was being a psychologist when I went to school. In fact, I took, uh, in my first year of college, I took a psychology course and I was so turned off by it that um, I didn't take another psychology course um, till graduate school. So I, I spent my undergraduate years studying uh, philosophy and theology, mostly Eastern religions. I studied Sanskrit, Buddhism, Hinduism, and so that that's sort of my, I think, intellectual foundation. Um, in uh, somewhere along the line, I realized, well, there weren't a lot of people to talk to uh, studying Sanskrit. And uh, as the more I studied philosophy, the more I realized that what I was interested in was, was figuring out how to use our minds to make our lives better. Mm -hmm. And so the draw of philosophy to me was, um, you know, uh, coming up with uh, or, or discovering the ideas that I could use to guide my own life. I mean, the whole process was was fairly selfish, especially early on, you know, in my in my 20s and my teens and 20s. And um, I think what, uh, you know, I discovered a lot of a lot of important things, but I really didn't want to be an academic. I wanted to be out in the community somehow. I wanted to I, I felt I felt the uh, the negative effects of being kind of isolated or in the ivory tower. And I really wanted to take a few steps in the direction of being of practical service. And that's where my interest in psychology came in. And in the course of um, taking classes in psychology to prepare myself to do a, um, a doctoral degree in clinical psychology, I ran across because of the um, because of just some requirements. I took a physiology class and um, started and there wasn't much. This is probably the late 1970s. There wasn't a lot of neuroscience back then. Um, probably if I had if I had a few, maybe if I had a year, I could probably read everything that existed in neuroscience at the time. So there wasn't there wasn't that much there, but I became fascinated by the parallels that I saw um, with uh, experimental research with animals and the parallels with uh, psychopathology in humans. And so the early seed was planted that. Um, that the brain and the mind were connected and back then they were they were not seen as connected the, the the personality was seen almost from a kind of christian you know judeo-christian perspective our spirits float through the body and the uh the, the our biological systems are sort of just a, a a container for our for our spirit but um the more i looked into it the more i said no it's like that that dualism that separation between mind and body uh, or spirit and body isn't real. There's something more fundamental here. And plus there's a, uh, you know, Buddhists discovered this a couple of thousand years ago that, you know, consciousness is derived 
from a whole set of uh, bodily sensations, relationship dynamics, external variables. And um, so I just sort of fell, I fell in love with neuroscience. And so while I was preparing and training and setting up a practice I, uh, in psychotherapy, I just continued to do my studies in, um, in neuroscience sort of as a passion. And um, eventually someone, you know, I, I was, I was uh, going on neurology rounds at UCLA for years. And um, I, I was teaching classes and in physiological psychology. And I realized that the, the textbooks I, I was using in my class really weren't, weren't not only that interesting, but weren't as relevant as they need to be. So I just started writing chapters and distributing them to my class to give them insight into the neuroscience and the neurology. And eventually I realized, well, I've got enough here for my own, my own text and uh, put that together with the encouragement of some, uh, you know, very uh, bright friends and very encouraging friends. And that was sort of the beginning. Before that, I had written lots of articles in piecemeal here and there on different topics, but the Neuroscience of Psychotherapy, which is my first book, and I'm just beginning to work on the fourth edition of that book, um, that really was the kind of the, the foundation stone in all the work that, uh, in the books that came later. So basically, all these years later, I'm still at it, building on those foundations and uh, still enjoying reading, you know, the, the 20 or 30 articles that come out every week that are interesting, having to do with, uh, you know, uh, mind brain behavior relationships. That's very interesting. Now, I've heard you say in another interview, Lou, that uh, whenever you were first sort of getting started uh, in therapy, you trained in many different approaches. So I think you, is it true that you actually trained with Carl Rogers or you worked with Carl Rogers at some, some stage? Yeah, my, in fact, my professor at Harvard was a student, a uh, very close student of Carl Rogers. So Carl would come to Harvard and train us wow. when he could get away from his other, other responsibilities. And um, that was a very uh, important part of my training. Just the, uh, not just learning his, his methods because I could, you know, I learned that really from books and from other people, but it was really experiencing the embodiment of his, of his teachings in the person. And that was, uh, you know, there, there's a little Carl sitting inside of me. I have very vivid memories of the lectures and the interactions and uh, the, the various aspects of my training from back then. Wow, very cool. Um, so yeah, what I was getting at there, so you trained in Rogerian therapy, I think you trained in cognitive therapy at some point, family yeah. systems, and a few others. And I'm, I just, I'm curious to ask, because like most things in human life, um, therapy can be quite tribalistic, you know, everyone's got their tribe, and you seem to be able to maintain a bit of distance and not get pulled into one particular orientation so I'm just curious was that a conscious decision that you made and how did that benefit you being able to have that bit of distance and not get pulled into one orientation or the other well I, I think probably my training in philosophy was a good foundation because as I went through the classes uh, the various classes that I took as an undergraduate every every uh, professor had become a devotee of some philosopher. So it wasn't each class wasn't just a class with information. It was also uh, an attempt at indoctrination. Right. And having having survived and escaped Catholicism as a child, 
it was important for me not to get roped into any other, you know, uh, medieval, uh, you know, belief systems. And so I think that by the time I got to psychology, it was always clear to me that whoever that the same thing was happening. The professors were trying to, in a sense, uh, you know, uh, enlist you in their little army. And um, I, I tried always to see the benefit of their, their approach, um, who it worked for, um, when it worked, what kind of diagnoses it worked for. But I was also very keen, on, instead of glossing over those areas where it didn't work, because the devotees just say, well, if my therapy doesn't work for this client, then the client is being resistant, right? That's their, that's their story. Um, but I think the truth of the matter is that uh, if you can't overcome a client's resistance, you've got to consider taking some responsibility for that. And there are incredibly good, like for example, Wilhelm Reich, who was one of Freud's disciples, um, wrote a book called Character Analysis, which was all about understanding, appreciating, and uh, trying to um, help people see their defenses and their resistances. That made me realize that that was just, you know, that was really just an excuse for failure. And so for me, it was a more of, and, and the, at the beginning of my work in neuroscience and psychotherapy was, well, what are the common elements of, of the th all the therapies when they work? Because, and that's what I broke down into notions of neuroplasticity, affect regulation, relationship building, cortical involvement, you know, the sort of the dynamics of what all of these successful therapies have in common seems more important than picking a team. It's really interesting. Um, one of the things I, I heard you say this before, but um, something I find interesting is that successful therapy depends upon um, integrating both thinking and emotions. Could you maybe speak to that a little bit and why, why that's important? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that the, uh, we tend to think of dissociation as something that is an extreme reaction to trauma or other sorts of, uh, you know, uh, severe experiences. And the truth of the matter is we all dissociate, right? Um, every, you know, if you, if you just look at it at the political arena, for example, people don't only gerrymander districts in order to have votes in their favor, they also gerrymander reality. They pick the things that they want to believe in and they ignore the things they, that don't fit, right? So everyone's in the process of creating, you know, a narrative that makes them feel comfortable and, and connected with their, you know, compadres and, uh, and all of that. So I think that the, so we all dissociate. So one of the things, if you look at, if you look at psychotherapy from a, a neurodynamic perspective, um, you can correlate mental illness with a lack of integration and coordination between different systems. And um, you can look at mental health as the optimal connectivity and sharing of, of all the information available to you. And I think that if, unless I'm mistaken, it seems like all forms of therapy are designed to uncover things or, or, or uncover things you're not aware of or re-examine assumptions that you've made that are not in your best interests. So the whole process of psychotherapy, I mean, unless you're talking about psychosis and OCD and you know severe illnesses where um, medication is required or other sorts of intervention are required, for the most part, uh, you know, the, the, the everyday mental illness that most people suffer from is a, is a function of dissociation 
And it's often, um, you know, because of our, our hemispheric splits and our, our top-down, uh, you know, splits uh, along the neuroaxis, that emotion and cognition often are the two big categories of things that become separated. So a lot of what happens in psychotherapy is, in a sense, the activation of, of networks that are dedicated to both of those functions and get them in discussion with each other and see if they can't get on the same page so that people can feel with, with, with being mindful and self-reflective and also that they can think and have their emotions involved. 100%. Um, so there's research from a guy, I think he's called John Norcross, but he basically found that there are over 500 types of psychotherapy, right? So there's more loads. More than that. More, <laughs> it probably is. Um, so there's loads of techniques out there. And I think this probably puts pressure on therapists to sort of like learn as much as they can and go from one workshop and one seminar to the next. And it seems that a big focus of your work is focusing on like core underlying principles, because if you understand these, these core principles, like that's going to do most of the, the work for you, I suppose. So I'm just curious, you know, in terms of looking at things like common factors and like guiding principles for you in therapy, what what are your guiding principles in therapy and the you yeah what would you say is the most important things that therapists should be focusing on well i think you know you've got to realize that the 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 workshops the certifications the seminars all of those things are a way for therapists to make money right so they're not going to go away they're going to continue to proliferate the problem is i think most of the most of the training programs and, you know, in the States, we've got master's and doctoral level um, training programs, and most of them don't do a very good job. You know, they, they, um, they end up in the same thing with the workshops. They become the tools of whatever particular interests the faculty have, uh, you know, the individual faculty have, but they don't necessarily, you know, present a broad base of the basic elements. So I think your question is, is an incredibly important one. And I supervise people from all over the world now. And um, they all go through these training programs and they get some, you know, they buy into some very limited uh, sort of uh, school. There's always, you know, the ABC FG therapy, like they've always got a bunch of letters and they always pick, they always pick some very small town from, a, from the very large country of psychotherapy and they say, this is the center, this is the end all, everything, you can do everything from this little town, right? Um, and so I think that's, that's the problem, the, the, uh, the real failure of the educational system, plus the rise of the capitalistic, uh, the, the capitalistic uh, you know, psychotherapy training uh, weekends for the therapists who are no longer interested in doing therapy, but wanna make money talking to big audiences and be messianic in their approach you know, to, to the training. You know, but getting back to your question, uh, what are the core elements um, beneath it? I think that a core element, um, first and foremost, is is the um, the relationship between the therapist and the client, regardless of, of what in, um, of what perspective or, or, or orientation you have, because we evolved as social creatures, and our brains and our you know both our neural networks. And uh, the mechanisms, the biochemical and genetic mechanisms of, uh, of plasticity, they are, they evolve to become activated in the context of safe relationships. 
So if you put us in the context of tribal life, for most of our evolutionary history, we learned from the people that cared for us and that we cared for, you know, and that was our training. And basically, and some of those systems of plasticity and mirror neurons, for example, those things actually shut down when we're interacting with people we don't trust or don't like, right? So there are many, many levels, conscious and primarily unconscious levels of learning, uh, streams of information that go across the social synapse that affect a change in our bodies and our brains so that we can learn, let in new information, change, reorient our brain. So I would say number one is the quality of the relationship. And going back to Rogers, I think Rogers basic uh, beliefs, you know, I think that everyone who's doing therapy should should really understand and know and and um, I don't know, internalize, I guess is a good word, Rogers basic beliefs, because I think from a neuroscience perspective, um, they are the optimal it's the optimal context, both for parenting and for psychotherapy. Just a quick break here to tell you about an exciting new membership we're developing, and then we'll get right back to the show. This gets you access to our mastered library of over five years of psychology conferences, including over 230 talks and interviews with the world's leading psychologists, professors, and authors, unlimited CPD certification, transcripts, quizzes, premium passes for our annual conference, online courses with Richard Schwartz and Deb Dana, and more. The cost is £97 for one year, which breaks down at around 27p per day. The best bit is you can try it out for 30 days completely risk-free, as all orders come with a 100% money-back guarantee. If you're interested, please go to twumembers.com for more information. Okay. So I would say that if I had, you know, if, if, you, if I was going to create Lou University, one of the, uh, certainly the first uh, year long course I would have would be in the power of, uh, of Roger's perspective and, and the actual relationship that you develop. And in most, you know, and most uh, training programs, they tell you that everybody thinks it's the relationship and then they leave you alone. You know, they don't really say much more about it. So you're left to figure that out for yourself. And, you know, depending on what someone's defenses are or their personality, they create whatever they want to create, but they don't get trained in it. They don't get trained in being able to listen. You know, they don't get trained in examining their countertransference and trying to keep it out of the, of the session so that the session is about the client and not you, right? So I would say that for me would be, that'd be the first year of a training program, right? I think the second year of a training program would really be the, um, the, that would focus on the developmental neuroscience, the psychopharmacology and the biology and the evolutionary history of our brains and our bodies and how we construct consciousness and awareness and how our brains, um, our brains are very delicate. You know, they're incredibly complicated and they're very delicate. And so they go wrong a lot of the times. And we're also very vulnerable to trauma and stress and the like, right? So I would say the second year would be um, from a physiological perspective. So I've moved from the phenomenological to the physiological. And then probably in the third year, I would talk about the, um, the spectrum of, um, the spectrum of, uh, of options you have in focusing on the brain, on the mind, on the family, on the culture, right? 
because all of those things are inter they interpenetrate with one another. You can try to do therapy with an oppressed people, but as Marx said, you know, well, it's just an opiate to keep them calm. At that, that was his argument against uh, psychoanalysis. Okay, and so you've got to look at all of these different levels in, in really understanding a person. Okay, and and so that would be the broad training, and then the uh, you know the other aspects would would have to do with uh, sort of basic principles of uh, you know like we talked about before the regulation of cognition and affect, and then certainly I'd spend uh, a year on on things like uh, on narrative, on how the cortex how the cortex gets organized via stories and narratives, and that's how you know humans and stories co-evolved. And, um, and how each form of therapy results in some kind of narrative that people use as kind of a map to live their lives. So that would be, um, Lou University would have those, uh, those core components to it. Sign me up. Um, no, but I think that's so valuable for anybody like myself. I'm interested in training in the future, you know, and that's just, that's super helpful just to, just to hear that. So I think a lot of people are gonna benefit from that too. Um, so, Louis, one of the things I'd sort of like to get into now, um, I've been reading your book, um, Why Therapy Works, and you have a whole section in there on why humans need therapy. And something I find particularly interesting about this section was this concept of the vital half second. So could you maybe explain what, what that is and, and why that's important to know about? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I see. Um, it's, it's, I can say, the theory is based, is loosely based on some loose science, right? But it, but it provides a context for, um, for thinking about how the brain operates. The, the key principle of it is that we don't exist in the present moment, or we don't, I should say, we don't experience, um, uh, we don't consciously experience life or, 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 you know, existence in the present moment. We experience it about a half a second behind, right? Mm -hmm. And in that half second, our brain's uh, very active, and it is, um, it, you know, even when we're not attending to anything, our brain is very active. Just ask any Buddhist meditator, and they'll tell you how many decades it takes to get any kind of handle on that. And um, in that half a second, our brains, based on our past, are constructing our experience of the present. So um, put another way, going back, evolutionarily, um, the reason why brains evolved were to navigate the environment and pre predict and control outcomes and help us to um, make better choices that are more likely to lead to our genes getting passed on to the next generation. And so in that half second, 90% of our brain functioning isn't, isn't dedicated to external input, it's dedicated to internal processing. Mm. So in that half second, our brain creates what we're, it actually creates the future from a half a, a, half a second from now um, that we are going to consciously experience as the present. And that future that's created is based on our past experiences, right? Because it's an attempt to predict and shape, in other words, to fill in blank spaces, to resolve ambiguity, to perhaps overreact to any potential dangers, all of those things, right? And so, and cleverly in evolution, because being aware of all that stuff probably would make us just go crazy. It's that 
the the reality that's presented to us is that we live in the present and that we're conscious of everything that's going on and all the information. So it's quite a magic show that our brain is able to create. So when I talk about, uh, you know, going back to that vital half second, the vital half second is the time in which our brain has the, has the uh, opportunity to create the present that we are about to experience. That, does, that make, does that make any sense at all? <laughs> it, it does. It does. It blows my mind and terrifies me at the exact same time as well. And, you know, um, that sort of leads well into the next, the next point. You know, another thing that you mentioned in that book is that our early experiences have outsized effects on us. Like they really have a big impact. Like the first few years of our life are so, so important. And okay. I, I, the story you tell about um, you were, I think you were on a meditation retreat and you, you um, basically experienced a really intense pain. I think it was on the side of your face. And can you tell us about that and your, your, the dream that that brought up and everything that I think that story illustrates this point really well. If, do you know what I'm talking about here? I do. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, just as a, as a background for, um, well, I won't go into the background. I was at, like you said, I was at the meditation retreat and we were going through this body scan after many, uh, you know, it was probably after 12 hours of meditation. So the, uh, pretty worn down by this point, our defenses were pretty low. And, um, the, um, and when I say meditation, I mean a variety of different sorts of, uh, you know, experiences and, and things that were shaped by the people running the program. Um, but I had this, uh, I was in this, I was sitting in a chair uh, in a room with two, 250 people. I, uh, I was, you know, my body started moving on its own. It curled up in the fetal position. I rolled off the chair onto the floor. I was, uh, I was semi-conscious. I was conscious of the fact that I was in the room in the hotel, but I was also conscious of the fact that my body was experiencing something that had nothing to do with being in a hotel room as an adult. And um, I was incredibly hot and completely uh, covered with sweat almost instantaneously. I felt as if I was being squeezed, um, you know, like uh, as if I was in the hand of a giant and pressing me, pressing me together. Um, after a while, I felt uh, the sharp pain along the side of my face on the on my left cheek, and um, then after a while longer, my feet became cool. I noticed that, and the pressure was relieved. And then, going up my body from my feet to my calves to my knees, and then continuing up, upward towards my head, the coolness that that experience rushed up my body, and the pressure was gone, and I had really no clue what happened. And I still had about six hours more to go in this uh, seminar. So I got up on my seat and uh, continued on and sort of put it out of my mind because I really didn't have any hook to hang it on. Um, it wasn't an experience that made any sense to me. Um, a week or so later, I was I visited my mom and she was uh, I asked her, um, you know, I, she asked me about what had happened during that retreat. And this came to mind and I told her and her eyes widened and she was very, uh, you know, she was, you know, and I, at the time I was a 20, early twenties math major. And so I didn't believe she, and she believes in astrology and all these other things. And so I didn't really give much credence to what she said, but she took me in the bathroom and showed me the scar on my face, which was right where the pain was. And she said, you know, when you were born, you had turned sideways, you couldn't get out. 
they were put in all these forceps and they cut your face up when they did that. And um, somehow they got you to turn around. So they got your feet and they pulled your feet out. And so what you had experienced was your birth. And so my response to that was, oh, BS. You know, that's a, we can't re-experience our birth. Like, come on, you know, that's crazy. She said, all right, all right, all right. And I really didn't, um, you know, I didn't believe her and I sort of put it out of my mind. And it was six months later when I was, I was up in Boston uh, going to school at the time. And I, I was uh, lying in bed one morning, just, uh, you know, killing time, not wanting to get up right away. And I realized that for the, that I hadn't had the night before or as far back as I could remember a dream, a recurrent dream that I had had since I was as early as I could remember, which was that I would get my head stuck in something. So I would be walking down a flight of stairs and the stairs would narrow to this little round point, or I'd be swimming under the ocean and there'd be ice above and there'd be a little hole in the ice and I would try to get there. So there was a million different scenarios over the years, right? But um, the experience always was the same. I was going to suffocate, I was gonna die. The belief in my mind was that if I could only get my head through the hole, I would be fine. But even in the dream, I realized that my shoulders are much bigger than my head. So if I got my head in through the hole, I'd still be stuck. But physically, intuitively, I, I knew that if I got my head through, the rest of me would slide through, right? Mm. And as I'm lying there reflecting on this, I realized I hadn't had one of these dreams, which I had probably twice a week, three times a week for my whole life. I hadn't had one of those dreams since I had that experience in this retreat. So then I started remembering what my mother had told me and then reconsidering because I didn't, I didn't believe it because she told me, but the, the, to me, and again, I still don't know what, what the truth is about this. I'm just making up a narrative about it, right? But the, um, the thing that's, that is most convincing, if it is true, is that there was something from a Freudian or a psychodynamic perspective, there was something cathartic about having this conscious experience of that traumatic experience that allowed me to stop having the intrusive imagery and the, and the dreams for my entire life. I mean, that was very convincing to me. You know, and I know there are people like Arthur Janov who um, who believe that birth trauma was was central to the development of personality. And there are people that believe in the relationship between personality development, epigenetics, uh, you know, template genetics, all of these things. So I really don't know enough about all of those things to sort of to pontificate about them. But all I can do is share my experience and say it really made me have second thoughts about you know, some old Freudian theories of abreaction and re-experiencing that I had kind of put aside because I wasn't that convinced they were true. That's, that's so interesting. So you were having this recurring dream two or three nights a week, pretty much every week of your life until you had this experience. And then when you had the experience after that, have you ever had the same dream or is that gone? Never once. Wow. Never once since, yeah which I got to tell you is a real, is a real uh, improvement to my life because I would make, I would wake up after these dreams, you know, hyperventilating. I mean, I was terrified and I can't imagine over the first 20 years of my life or however long I had these dreams, how much extra cortisol got pumped into my body and, and whatever damage, uh, damaging effect that had on my brain, you know? 
Incredible. And then like another thing you talk about is, you know, we pick up things like attachment schemas and stuff in early age. And, you know, you, the, we've all got sort of, I suppose, bugs and flaws in our in our schemas. And those can affect and have negative effects on almost every relationship in our life from from then on out. Can you maybe talk about that there as well? Um, well, you know, you think about what happens, because I remember going back to the, the question you were asking about the the um, the heavy, the, the extreme valence of early experiences. And I think just as a, you know, as kind of a, a, a background to that is that there are, you know, before we're five, before our, our hippocampi and, and temporal lobe systems have uh, formed well enough to the point where we've got sort of solid uh, repeatable episodic memories, autobiographical memories, are all of these critical and sensitive periods of brain development that are designed to learn from the environment um, what type of what type of world we live in, right? Mm -hmm. So for and it parallels our ancestors, our you know um, our mammalian ancestors going back to rats and mice and moles and. The, the, the little mammals that were able to live underground about 50 million years ago that survived the extinction event, right, that we all descended from, um, you know, these, these brain structures are all, um, they're designed to pick up from our, our mothers first in utero and then from those around us early in life, how safe or dangerous is the world? Are there adequate resources? Um, can I trust other people? Am I valuable? Am I accepted by the tribe? Or, you know, am I adored? You know, all of these basic things that become the core of self-esteem, self-image, affect regulation, um, attachment schema, all of that stuff gets organized very early. It's not that it can't be changed. I mean, the, the psychotherapy is all about plasticity and trying to, you know, redo those things. But the, our early experiences, and, you know, this goes back to uh, Freud's early theories, right? These early experiences affect us. We're unconscious of them, um, and they—they're part of that uh, vital half second that organize the experience that we're about to have, right? And so, if our attachment schema or if our our experience and relationships are untrustworthy, if other people, if the people that are supposed to make us feel safe actually frighten us, or they're undependable or whatever. Before we even are conscious of looking at someone else, right, our, our brains of preload that suspiciousness, the avoidance, the distance and all that. And we play that particular relationship in the shadow or through the strategies of these early relationships. And so in therapy, you know, I've had uh, many clients who come in, um, you know, there may be in their, um, you know, they may be in their uh, late 20s. To late 30s something like that and their complaint is that they're lonely they want to be in relationships and um you know that but they're very unlucky because they keep finding bad people to be in relationship with right mm. and so um what what i found over and over again is that um everyone has a, a sort of a dance that they do some people really are great at dating they're great at forming the relationship but then something shifts once they start having the feeling of dependency or intimacy, they get to a certain distance in their heart from the other person. And then early memories get activated about abandonment, about, uh, you know, um, 
conflict, about fear, and then they start finding reasons why the person that they're with isn't good. And then mm -hmm. they start moving away. And so they'll repeat. And, you know, there are a, a thousand variations of this uh, of this cycle. But I think that in those situations, what I believe you're seeing is at a certain point of closeness to someone, these early attachment schema become activated and your brain, instead of saying approach, starts saying avoid, get the hell out of here, watch your back, all of that stuff. But you don't know that. So what you do is you start developing some conscious narrative about what's wrong with the person, right? 100%. Because our, our brains, our left hemispheres hate not knowing. So if they don't, if we don't know, we just make stuff up. Um, kind of like probably that would describe 90% of our political world, right? People don't know what they're doing, but they know what they want. So they make up stories to justify it. So I think that's the, um, you know, that's a sort of a prototypic example of the, uh, the embedded attachment and the attachment also, for example, with, uh, with fathers very often get laid on top of authority figures at work, at life, you know, in different ways. And then you get the people that can't really tolerate working for a boss. You know, they've got to work for themselves because bosses make them crazy because they're so stupid and they lack understanding and compassion and all of that. And, um, you know, certainly there are bad bosses, but if you've ran into a dozen in a row, you may want to consider that it's something that in that vital 50 seconds is getting front loaded for you. And, um, you know, you're the common denominator across those dozen situations. That, that along with the idea of the vital half second is just like, it's, it's shocking, um, interesting, but it's, I suppose that, I suppose that's the real sort of aim of psychotherapy then is to improve the processing of that vital half second so that it's more more accurate or more more helpful for the clients the clients well-being um yeah. Yeah. now something else that i found quite interesting alu was um this idea of core shame and how this how this differs from appropriate shame could you maybe tell us what core shame is and why that's important for therapists to be aware of yeah well i think the um uh guilt and shame and core shame i mean people tend not to be very careful in how they define them um and so i'm um, what i try to do is be clear about uh, be clear about the definitions first of all and guilt for me is is something guilt is something that you um that you're guilty about doing something right there's some it has to do with a transaction guilt and shame are about social contracts okay um and then there's shame, which is you can feel ashamed of yourself after you've done something particularly bad and you can sit with that shame and you can learn from it. Um, and so those are guilt and shame to me are, are cortical processes grounded in social contracts that are um, that have the possibility not only of group coordination and shared agreements, but also have the possibility of um, of learning about the self and learning values. I mean, you know, think about Judeo-Christian, the Judeo-Christian world is all about shame. You know, um, the Confucian cultures of China, Chinese has 125 words for shame because it's such an important part of how social contracts are navigated, negotiated. And um, in fact, I had an Asian student tell me, a Chinese student yesterday tell me that uh, she doesn't see shame as negative. She just sees it as a way she just sees it as social glue, right? 
So there's lots of different ways to look at this. But core shame to me is not the shame, is neither of those. Core shame is the shame you feel about your essence, about your value, about your very being, right? That makes you feel like a fraud, that makes you feel like you're always at risk for being outed and ostracized and, you know, and, and voted off the island or whatever, you know, whatever popular terms are used for that now. And um, historically, shame, you know, shame has been, when you think about, you know, if you have a bunch of non-social critters and, you, and in an evolutionary process is, is combining them to be codependent, to create a more complex species that would be, that could develop super, super organisms like families and tribes and, you know, armies and nests and, you know, all of these things. Um, what you've got to do is leverage existing structures um, to create some new functions. And so my, my idea about this is that the predator and prey dynamics that we had from when we were single animals, the fear and the reactions to predators like freezing or, or running or fighting or whatever, that those were bootstrapped, bootstrapped during the evolution of social animals for social organization. And so what we do as humans is we're always looking to the one, to the, the, the charismatic one, the popular one, the tall one, the attractive one, whatever it is. On social media, it's always, you know, um, the Kardashians or God knows who else are the, are the most important people. And we all refer to them. We look to them for guidance on what we wear and how we think and what we listen to, you know, and that's just the more a later evolving human off growth of how it exists in. If you look at a troop of, of chimps, say the chimps are the chimps who aren't the alpha always have one eye on the alpha. Mm. Right. And if the alpha gets mad at them, they either go into a fight flight mode or they go into a, a they, they lay down and bare their neck, just like your dog will if you scold your dog. All of those things are still embedded of, in us. And so we have alphas and betas, just like other groups of social animals. Okay, And so I think core shame, um, before we had large cortices and before we had imagination and identity, right? The shame was used, this physiological aspects of shame, the, uh, you know, uh, parasympathetic dominance, the, you know, surrendering to the dominant one and all of that. Um, that was just a, a way we organized uh, social behaviors, just like a pack of dogs does. But now that we evolved these huge cortices, right, the, um, in a sense, that um, hierarchical structure and that alpha beta struggle uh, sort of contaminates and, and it, it's the foundation of our cortex is resting on these very primitive you know, ideas. So that's why most people go around feeling they're not good enough. They're not adequate. They're always looking to someone else who's more popular. They were bullied in, in elementary school and high school, um, you know, and, and people are always bullying other people, you know, in one form or another, whether it's individual to individual, group to group. And so people, you know, in my experiences therapy, in therapy, as I've had many, many clients who are the best of citizens. They pay their parking tickets, they pay their taxes, they do everything right. If you're gonna have a party, they're the ones that bake the cookies and bring the cookies, right? And they are terrified of being outed for like not being good enough, right? And so they walk on eggshells their entire life trying to be the good boy or the good girl. But really, the, one of the best quotes I read about this is that with core shame, 
nothing you have done is wrong and there's nothing you can do about it right because it's not something that it's not something related to your behavior it's something that probably is transmitted genetically just as like we all have vestigial tails and we have other we have gills that get closed up during gestation so it's probably part of our evolutionary history that comes preloaded and so a lot of work that i do with clients like this um you know once we talk about things like abuse and other reasons why you know they could actually feel shame because a lot there are a lot of reasons why you can be shamed in life but at, at baseline i don't think you can get a, rid of this shame unless you're a, a complete narcissist like i doubt donald trump has the shame you know he doesn't seem to have any feelings at all for other people or any self-reflective capacity but when you look at um you know when you look at this i think it's important to educate our patients that part of the shame has nothing to do with them it's almost as if they had diabetes that's not a character flaw what you have to do is take insulin to counterbalance this genetically inherent process right so that's the to me that's sort of the story around shame that's so interesting and to me that it makes a lot of sense to look at it as a as an adaptation to I suppose before we had language and before we had a way of sort of organizing our groups through language that we needed a way to sort of model the behaviors of the person that was best equipped to to lead the group so right. it makes sense that you know I'm just thinking of an example I used to play competitive sport when I was younger and anytime I would do something like that was sort of beyond my current capabilities, like I would go beyond something that I, like if I did something really good, there was always a big part of me that was just like, right, calm down. Like, don't be, you know, go back to your role. Like don't do anything too extraordinary here. You know, and I think that's maybe what was happening there, you know, um, it makes yeah. sense. Um, yeah, team sports are really good. If you're talking about football, right? I mean, team sports are, are, really wonderful uh, context in which to explore this. Like how do, how do people coordinate into an organism called a team? Mm. Because you get it, you know, some teams have really great superstars and sometimes you can win on the back of a superstar, right? But you can also win through having a team that is super integrated and communicates well and works as functions as one. 100%. Different ways to win. 100%. Yeah. Right. I, I'm kind of gutted we've only got an hour, Louis, because there's so many things I want to ask you. But I, I suppose something, I really, a, a really cool idea from the book is this idea of therapists as almost like applied neuroscientists. And something you say is, you know, the success of psychotherapy really depends upon the therapist's ability to stimulate neuroplasticity in their clients. So could you maybe tell us a bit more about that there? Mm -hmm. Well, there's a few different components to that. The first component is um, what I call being an amygdala whisperer, okay. right? You have to be able to, um, to have to, if the client is, is anxious or frightened or distrustful, you have to be able to um, modulate, down-modulate amygdala activation and autonomic nervous system arousal in order to, because the amygdala actually inhibits two, two executive systems in the brain that we need, probably three, that we need to, um, 
have acted in therapy in order to uh, to affect change. One system is the you know the frontal parietal system that's involved in executive uh, functioning, problem solving, you know, and all of that. And the other is the default mode network, which we need in order to be self-reflective and connect with the therapist and, and have empathy for other people. There's a, a third system called the salient circuit, which becomes active um, when, we're, when we're confronted with novelty. So it, trick, it sort of tells the brain to pay attention, start learning now, turn on plastic processes and all. So the amygdala is sort of the front door. You've got, if, you, if you can't develop a relationship with the amygdala, you don't have access to the cortex and to the other systems of change. So first and foremost is you've got to be able to find that sweet spot. And that, you know, if, you, if someone's too aroused, plasticity turns off. If someone isn't aroused enough, if they're not motivated, if they're not interested, uh, plasticity gets turned off. And so it's sort of this delicate, uh, it's sort of performance art. It's this delicate art of being able to downregulate anxiety, upregulate interest and motivation to get the client in the sweet spot of amygdala activation where the neurochemistry and the neurodynamics of the different neural systems are primed to learn, mm. right? So that's the first uh, sort of the, the, the front door. And then, then, you know, once you're in, if you're in, then really the challenge is the art of the, of the therapy, which is to um, understand the pre-existing system and introduce new information or new challenges to stimulate, um, to stimulate the client to adapt to a new way of thinking or being. So one thing I talk about is creating experiments of living. So one thing you do with clients is you challenge them to do the things they're avoiding doing, they're afraid to do, you know, whatever, for whatever reason and you, um, you become a partner in that process outside of the therapy. And then inside of the therapy, what you're doing is very delicately and, and you know, intelligently adding new information that forces them to expand their previous conceptualizations, right? And so that's really what it is. So the first thing is creating a state of mind and brain that's receptive to, to new experiences. And then the second step is having the skill and the knowledge and the ability to know what to introduce when, mm. when that a client is able to handle. And that's why having a case conceptualization is so important. You know, what's the, uh, you know, what's their, what diagnosis would you have? And it doesn't have to be a DSM diagnosis. You can have a variety of different ways of thinking about it, but you have to have a plan and a strategy. Most therapists don't have that. Most therapists fly by the seat of their pants and just say, well, my job is to, is to make the client comfortable and talk. And that's pretty much all they got, mm -hmm. right? They've been in school for years, but that's all they got, right? There's no, they've never been trained or they haven't forced themselves to think about what's the strategy? What's the battle plan? You know, you just don't send all your troops into the Ukraine and hope they win, right? You got to have a battle plan. You have to have food supplies. You have to have munitions. You know, there's all sorts of stuff that goes on. And it's the same thing with psychotherapy. You have to have a conceptualization, a plan, some sort of sequencing in your mind from least challenging to most challenging things that you want to introduce. And of course, you're always updating and reframing what you're doing based on whatever new information you get. But I think um, this whole, uh, you know, going in and being nice to your client 
is not a strategy for psychotherapy. It's a way it's lazy, right? From my perspective. hundred percent, hundred percent. Okay. So moving on, um, another kind of really interesting section of the book is this idea of the, uh, the non-presenting problem. And there's a story of a gentleman called John, um, do you, um, who around the age of 20, I think he had experienced psychosis. And do you want to tell us about that? And I think he had a, do you know what I'm talking about? No, I don't remember that particular one, no. Okay, so the gentleman in the book, um, I think he, he had psychosis, but he cut off his, his penis. Oh, yeah. And no, yeah. you're trying to figure out um, what how yeah. this happened, you know, the non-presenting problem. So maybe if you could tell us about that, that example. Yeah, yeah. I, John, John doesn't ring a bell, but cutting off his penis did, right? <laughs> so I don't know why, but that's just right. Yeah, with the, um, you know, the, it was, he was a client in the, in a military hospital and um, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia and he cut off his penis. And um, of course we were all concerned uh, for other, you know, for even worse uh, behavior that he could engage in. And um, he, you know, his problem was that his, his sex, he was very conflicted about his sexuality, obviously, uh, and the voices were telling him to, to not be sexual at all. And, um, you know, you can, you can, based on just seeing the client, you can make all sorts of ideas and speculations about what's going on inside of him or what internal conflicts he has. But we decided to do a family session to bring his family in. And um, when his family entered, he had a very depressed father and depressed siblings. His mother was very vivacious, very over-sexualized, wearing very tight clothes. They all come in, they sit together, and he, the mother sits down next to him and puts his, her hand down on his inner thigh, right? And so, that's not something that the client would ever probably express to us, right? Because he's having so much talk going back to the discussion about dissociation. Um, his conflict is about the sexual desires he feels for his mother and knows that it's wrong and is trying to cope with it in some way, right? But when you look at the family system, you get a whole new sense of the source of the pathology of where it's coming from. And then you get to reframe everything. And he doesn't look as psychotic after that because you realize that this isn't something just emerged from some, you know, a small corner in his mind, but is actually the reality that he's been living in and has struggled in his whole life. It's it's so interesting and really emphasizes the point of um, looking at every problem from multiple levels, like looking at the level of the individual. You could even look at the person's biology, how they're sleeping, but also coming up to the family and everything else as well, you know. Yep. which is what you said earlier. Um, so just a, a couple of questions now to, to sort of finish up, Lou. Uh, if, if I asked you, if you had to gift three books to someone just starting as a therapist now, if you had to gift three books to someone starting as a therapist that you think would have a, a really big, helpful impact on their, on their work, what, what would they be? Um, or maybe... If that if that's a difficult question to answer, you know, are there any books that you have returned to more than once that have had a big impact on you? You know, does anything come to mind when I ask ask about ask oh, that yeah. question? Yeah, I mean, the first one that always comes to mind, probably the most important book I've read, um, and it wasn't the whole book; it was only the first hundred and twenty pages, um, was a book by Wilhelm Reich called Character Analysis. The second half of that book, I don't know, he sounded like he might have needed some medication, 
<laughs> he went, I think he went off the rails, but the first, like I said, the first part of that book, it's about 120 something pages, um, is probably the most sophisticated writing I've ever seen on um, the therapeutic process, resistance, character armor, character defenses. His book, that, that book was, the, was the, uh, the foundation of rolfing later on, of deep massage and psychotherapy. It's the foundation of somatic therapies now. And so that really is, uh, that's, a, that's an essential. Those 120 something pages are essential. And yeah. sorry, what, what, what's the title again, Louis? Sorry, so Wilhelm Reich and the title? Character, character Analysis. Character Analysis, okay. Yeah. So I would say that was number one. And number two, probably, as far as helping me in my framing of, um, you know, of, of going, uh, taking, of course, I'd recommend some basic book by Rogers, like Becoming a Person or something like that, because I think everyone should read, uh, instead of just hearing the two minutes of lecture from, a, you know, in Psych 101, it's probably good to to steep yourself in Rogers to un, to really get a deep sense of what he was talking about, um, and then a third the third set of books, um, and these are this is these are more I think focused and less less general. It's it's sort of in a in a perspective of uh, from an object relations perspective, uh, is are the is the work of Alice Miller, and um, she wrote a book called um, Thou Shalt Not Be Aware and another book called Drama of the Gifted Child. And she has a whole um, perspective uh, of psychotherapy that combines a Rogerian approach with a kind of archeological approach. In other words, like going back with a client to try to understand their history and not just from the perspective of an adult, but to regress in the process of remembering so that you can remember what it was like as a child to be in those situations, right? Because understanding from an understanding childhood childhood from an adult perspective is often less than you know less than useless, but being able to get back and and understand and remember what you experienced uh, from that perspective when you were completely helpless and vulnerable and dependent, and how the things and given the state of development of your brain. Um, as close as you can 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 a combination of remembering, but it's creative remembering. It's remembering with uh, with some knowledge and some, and a lot of empathy for who you were. I think that's an those are incredibly important uh, books in my training. Brilliant. Thanks very much. We'll we'll link to that in the show notes for this episode. Um, so just a question to finish up, Lou. If you could go back to yourself, you know, just before you started. You started your training as a clinical psychologist. Is there anything that you would tell that young man about, you know, just general advice or anything you would, any words of wisdom you would impart to him? Yeah, I mean, I think that it took me a long time. It took me a long time to learn to not believe anything. Right. Um, I think that I was looking like, you know, because humans, we evolved to believe. We didn't evolve to know. Right. We evolved to believe things so that we, our behavior could be guided. Um, and I think that it probably took me longer than I wish it had to the point where I gave up believing and just started accumulating information. Okay. So I guess what I would what I'd say to myself back at the at beginning is said, OK, don't waste your time choosing sides. 
don't waste your time believing. And not that I wasted a lot of time in doing that because I think I caught on early on, but I wish I would have caught on even earlier. Okay. That is, that is great advice. Uh, it'll be, I think it's hard to implement, but yeah, that is, uh, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and I, so I yeah. tell my students too, I say, please don't believe anything I say, you know, don't marry any of this information, just date it casually because half the things that I learned in graduate school are now wrong or have been changed. hundred percent. Uh, Richard Feynman has some really interesting thoughts on that as well. There's videos even on YouTube where he sort of goes into this concept. Um, but anyway, uh, Lou, I just want to say thank you so much for your time today and just sharing some of your wisdom and knowledge with us. It's, it's just been, it's been brilliant to speak with you and, and learn from you via, via, via your book. Um, so in terms of, uh, books and where, where to find you online, the, the book that we sort of mostly focused on this interview is things why, why therapy works, but you've also got a whole range of, um, others like the neuroscience of psychotherapy. You're currently doing the fourth edition of that. Mm -hmm. And can you tell us about a few others that people listening to this conversation might be interested in? Yeah, I wrote a book. I mean, taking these same principles, I wrote a book of, about education um, called the, uh, what is it? The, I can't, oh, the social neuroscience of education. So I take the principles from psychotherapy for any of you or, you know, are interested if you have uh, students, uh, you know, in school still, or if you're educators, you might be interested in, um, in that book, I wrote a book about uh, healthy aging called Timeless that's available. And uh, yeah, I think, uh, you know, and I've written, oh, there, if you're if you're uh, training as a therapist, probably the book that has been uh, that has the most copies sold is a book called The Making of a Therapist, which is really, you know, you asked that question about what I wish I knew. That book is all about uh, the, the things I wish I knew during my first you know, clinical sessions and uh, the early months of, of being in a clinic, right? And then I followed that up with a book called The Development of the Therapist, which is sort of, uh, you know, after a year, you know, what should you start thinking about once you, once you feel comfortable in the room, then how do you up your game? Okay, awesome, awesome. We'll, we'll link to these in the show notes. Lou, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. And I wish you all the best with what you're, what you're doing going forward. You're welcome. Thank you. Same to you.